Good afternoon and welcome to the Center for Strategic International Studies. I'm Andrew Schwartz and I, I work here in external relations. Uh, it's great to see you all here. We're, we're starting a little bit earlier than we normally do, but it's, it's a beautiful day and you can see all the sun coming in uh, through our new building. Kirk Campbell will tell you our, in our old building you couldn't see daylight for miles. Um, but we're very happy to have you all here. We're happy to have this terrific panel. Uh, in such a t on such a timely issue. Um, first, I'd like to tell you all that um, this wouldn't be possible without our friends at TCU. And uh, we are forever grateful to Bob Schieffer and the Schieffer College of Communication uh, who help us put this on. And in addition, of course, um, in addition to our great partner, TCU, uh, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation uh, has been uh, instrumental in putting the Schieffer series <coughs> on. Uh, and finally, I would just like to introduce uh, our newest CSIS trustee, Bob Schieffer. Well, thank you all very much for coming, and let me tell you that uh, TCU appreciates this just as much as uh, Andrew uh, says that CSIS does. It's been a great partnership for us and uh, really a chance to focus on some things that really matter. Uh, I think this subject today, when you get past the front burner issues that are pretty much on the front pages of every newspaper and on the newscasts at night, how the United States manages its relationship uh, with China in the years to come is the overarching and overriding foreign policy challenge uh, for this country, perhaps for both countries. And we have some people that really know something about it. Uh, Kirk Campbell uh, most recently served as Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs. He was uh, in the administration from 2009 to 2013. He was a key architect of the Rebalanced Asia Strategy, now Chairman and CEO of the Asia Group, a strategic advisory and investment group. Uh, in 2007, Dr. Campbell co-founded the Center for a New American Security uh, which is a Washington think tank, remains co-chair of the board of directors of CNAS. He has co-authored many books and is currently writing a book entitled Pivot about his experiences working on Asia-Pacific policy uh, in the Obama administration. Dmitry Sevastopoulos, uh, Sevas is very embarrassed, Sevastopoulos. <laughs> Just it's Dimitri. It's, it's a good Irish <laughs> name. It's just Dimitri. Can I call you Dimitri? You can, <laughs> okay. or anything else. Yeah. He is uh, well known uh, here in Washington, the bureau chief for the Financial Times, based in Hong Kong for five years, serving as news editor. He spent an additional two years in the uh, South China regional correspondent role. He uh, holds an MA in East Asian Studies from Harvard, where he taught Japanese and Chinese history as a teaching fellow. And then over here, our good friend Chris Johnson, senior advisor here at uh, CSIS. He holds the uh, Freeman Chair in China Studies. Uh, he's an accomplished Asian Affairs Specialist, uh, longtime CIA guy, spent nearly two decades serving in the U.S. government's intelligence and foreign affairs communities, extensive experience analyzing and working in Asia. He served as an intelligence liaison to two secretaries of state and their deputies on worldwide security issues in 2011, awarded the U.S. Department of State Superior Honor Award for outstanding support uh, to the secretary and her senior staff. He, too, has written extensively on all of these uh, things.
Uh, gentlemen, let me, let me just start off, and, and we have had the summit. Uh, President Xi Jinping was here. Uh, Chris and Kurt, I would just like to ask you both, as he goes back to China, what did we learn about him? Well, uh, I'm happy to start off. I, I think we learned several things. Uh, one is that President Xi very clearly articulated, I think, when he was here for the visit, uh, what his hopes are for the U.S.-China relationship, which is to see at some level a recognition on the U.S. part uh, that the mechanics of the relationship and the cadence of the relationship need to change in some uh, fairly fundamental ways uh, to take into account the reordering, if you will, of the global balance of power with China's growing rise and so on. This is very important to Xi Jinping. Uh, this is what's behind his conception of uh, what he calls a new style of great power relations between the U.S. and China, in which uh, he sort of thinks of the relationship as being set above, if you will, all of the day-to-day uh, -day bits of tension between our two sides. So whether that be cybersecurity or the South China Sea, uh, numerous other issues where we've had recent friction. Um, he wants to see the relationship elevated above that. And I think we saw that on display a few times uh, during the summit where I think President Xi was somewhat frustrated, as probably was President Obama, that you, know, you have the two leaders of these big economies, big countries, big important countries, and they're really in the weeds, you know, talking about cybersecurity and a lot of these issues. I think there's a desire on both sides to try to elevate the relationship a little bit, and we see Xi Jinping very much wanting to do that. Um, I think we also saw a, a, a president who, of course, we've seen this his whole tenure, uh, Kurt knows this better than anyone, having seen him many times, um, who's very self-confident, um, who was speaking just as much to the audience at home as he was uh, to the U.S. audience, in fact, much more so. Uh, this was especially true with regard to the pomp and circumstance of the visit, getting the 21-gun salute, the state dinner, all these things were very, very important to President Xi. Uh, Kurt, uh what, is he different than what we've seen in the Chinese leadership before? Is he yeah. something of the same? How did you evaluate Great. that? Great. Thank you, Bob, and congratulations on the role here at CSIS, and I want to thank Chris for bringing us together today, and it's good to be in this lovely uh, CSIS setting. Um, you know, if you look at the great Chinese um, experiment or uh, ambitions over the last 25 years, you know, clearly the economy is uh, the primary focus. But I think what a series of Chinese leaders have done, Bob, is try to put in place institutions and mechanisms that force uh, collective decision making, right? And so I would say when Chris and I worked together in government, we had a pretty good sense about how decisions were teed up in the state council, the foreign ministry, the People's Bank of China, we knew how they would be siphoned up into the standing committee, and we had a sense of how um, uh, the various interests were weighed and then ultimately decided. What's fascinating, and I think pretty much underappreciated on the part of the United States, in two years, um, President Xi has basically dismantled this entire mechanism. And so the reason, one of the ironies is, the reason why you've got to talk about very small, detailed issues with President Xi is that no one else has any power to talk about them. And so the, the only challenge in a system in which almost all the decisions are made by the leader is that it forces the leader to make all the decisions. And so we're striking, we were talking before we came out. Uh, you know, sometimes you meet with Chinese interlocutors, even very senior ones, and you can tell subtly in the intercourse 
that they're hoping to learn from you what you know about what's going on in their own system, which has never been my experience before. So I agree with Chris, he's a very strong leader. He's very determined. I will say, I do find that occasionally Chinese interlocutors who work closely with them will tell, use words like impatient and occasionally impetuous, make you know, you know, immediate decisions. That's very unlike previous Chinese leaders. I think he's prepared to accept a higher level of tension in the relationship between the United States and China. I'll tell you, I thought he played a very steady hand. I think he came to the United States in a period where, where we in the United States had the rarest of things in the US-China relationship. We had leverage. Um, and I think they maneuvered very effectively to get a variety of things out of the summit, pri primarily, as Chris underscored, this respect, right? The sense that, that, that she is a strong leader and he avoided some of the things that would weaken his domestic standing, particularly in the aftermath of a really substantial macroeconomic set of challenges, probably the worst in almost 20 years that played out over the summer. So I think she goes back to China somewhat relieved. Um, and I think it is also the case that the burden of the management of the US-China relationship has never rested so much on two people, President Obama and President Xi, in a world where they are both, as you said at the outset, consumed with other issues. Dimitri, uh, what do you think were the most important outcomes of the Obama-Xi summit? And, and talk to us a little bit about the United States relationship with China and the Britain. Britain's relationship with China right now. Sure. If I can also just add to yes. something that to Chris and, and Kurt said, I agree with them completely that Xi Jinping is probably the strongest Chinese leader since Deng Xiaoping and the way he's amassed power. But I think there are two things. If Donald Rumsfeld was here, he'd say there's one known unknown and one unknown unknown. <laughs> the known unknown is that with, given the way the economy has performed over the summer and the way the Chinese technocrats have by most measures, I think people think they've mismanaged what's happened. She is under a little bit more pressure than you would have been, um, given that the whole compact that the Chinese government has with its people is that we won't allow you to uh, protest in Tiananmen Square, but we'll give you economic growth every year. If economic growth starts to subside too much, that's a problem for the leadership. And Xi Jinping, he can use Li Keqiang, the premier, who's ostensibly in charge of the economy as a fall guy. On the other hand, because he's taken more control of things, he assumes a little bit more risk. I think the unknown unknown is that the flip side of his um, play for power is that he has, as everybody knows, engaged in an anti-corruption campaign for about two years. Um, we know the big names that he's taken down, uh, Zhou Yongkan, the security czar. But if you look at the whole panoply of cadres who've been either arrested, uh, lost their jobs, put under house arrest, it's more than 100,000 people. And therefore, there are a lot of arrows pointing in the direction of Xi Jinping's back. And we don't know at some point whether one of those will be fired. So I would say he's very, very strong, but he also, he needs a lot of armor right now. On the US versus the UK approach to China, I think it's very interesting. The, as Xi Jinping was preparing to come here, the Obama administration was debating whether to place sanctions on Chinese companies who are allegedly benefiting from commercial cyber espionage. And there was a big debate in the administration that ultimately President Obama decided to hold off for now. But he publicly said, China better watch out. 
In the UK, uh, Xi Jinping arrived uh, yesterday, I believe. The British government has basically been haggling over whether they define the relationship with China as a golden era or a golden decade. Um, <laughs> and we wrote a piece about this this morning. And I talked to a lot of Asia officials um, in Washington and even quoted one of them in, in the Financial Times this morning. Um, I could not find a single American official who wasn't highly critical of the way Britain is playing the China relationship. And, and the criticism is essentially that the UK has decided that everything else is fine as long as we boost trade and generate Chinese investment, particularly in infrastructure and other sectors in the UK where money is badly needed. So I think there's a, there's a real divergence in the way the two countries are dealing with the rising Pacific power. Well, what do you mean, though, uh, with how, give me, give me an example of how the, the British approach is different than the American approach, and what? Well, so uh, George Osborne, the chancellor, so the, the equivalent of the Treasury Secretary broadly, uh, went to Xinjiang, the northwestern province in China, a very rest of province where there's uh, problems between the local ethnic Uyghurs, uh, a Muslim minority group, and the Han Chinese and the Communist Party. Um, as far as I know, he's the first senior Western uh, politician to go there in a long time. And he, when he was there, he basically said, I want to take a risk on the China relationship because Britain really needs China. We want to be their biggest global partner. Uh, and, and ergo, the assumption was, therefore, we're not really going to raise questions about human rights. Um, we're not going to be very aggressive in challenging China in terms of what they're doing in the South China Sea. And all of the places where the US criticizes China for uh, perhaps um, not upholding the kind of norms, the international rules and regulations that have been in place for many decades, Britain is saying, although we were part of the uh, structure of that, if China wants to go in a different direction, that's okay as long as they invest in our nuclear plants. So let's talk about the uh, new assertiveness by, uh, for want of a better word, uh, of China uh, in the Pacific. Uh -huh. uh, and, and what does that mean, Chris? Uh, how far are they going to go? We know they're building islands now uh -huh. uh, on reefs. Uh -huh. what, what's this all about? I think we have to step back a little bit and understand it in the broader context of, because exactly what's going on on these individual islands and reefs on a day-to-day -day basis, it is sometimes challenging to know what their intentions might be. But where they've been very transparent since the day Xi Jinping arrived is in sort of laying out a very clear and broad maritime strategy uh, that I think has the following components. The, the message is effectively that China will allow its forces, will operate its forces in that entire maritime domain out to the second island chain with Guam and into the Indian Ocean and that whole area at times of its choosing, uh, perhaps even with impunity on occasion. And the regional neighbors, and particularly the United States, have to accept that. That's, I think, the bumper sticker of the message. Um, we saw this right from the beginning. Interestingly, as the previous president, Hu Jintao, was departing, uh, as every departing party secretary does at that particular party congress, he delivered the valedictory political work report in which, in the 20,000-odd characters, there was one phrase, China <coughs> is a maritime power which is a simple sentence, so you say, okay, big deal. Well, no Chinese leader had uttered it in about 5,000 years, somewhere, <laughs> or yeah. 500 years. So they're back, you know, in the maritime space, basically. 
Uh, and we've seen Xi Jinping reinforce this uh, at several points along his tenure, most recently uh, at a major speech that he gave called a Foreign Affairs Work Conference, where he sort of set out his foreign policy vision, and then on the military side with some doctrinal changes that they made in a recent white paper that talk a lot about this maritime space. So they have a game plan. It's very clear what it is. Um, and sometimes I think it's easy to get lost in the weeds of you know, which particular island is being built and so on. But what we do see down there uh, in the South China Sea is a defined strategy. They're putting these airstrips on these islands in a very particular uh, fashion. And if you compare and contrast to, say, the last time we really had to think about this in a real crisis scenario, which would have been the 1995-96 Taiwan Strait crisis, at that time, that whole area was a strategic back reserve for the US. We could flow forces through there very easily without any problems, you know, and so on, if we needed to get involved in a Taiwan scenario with China. This building would greatly complicate that in the future, um, and also, of course, send signals to the region about US commitment, et cetera. Well, why, Kurt? I mean, what, what is the motivation here? Is this playing to nationalism because the economy is not very good? If that's the first, it wouldn't be the first time that a leader has, has chosen to do something uh, like that. But what is it that, that is motivating China to do this? Because this is unlike China of the past, is it not? Um, there is a lot of historical reinterpretation that goes hand in hand with the idea of uh, uh, China re-rising. I'm, I'm not sure, I, it's a longer discussion. I would say that the current Chinese mindset really is about, um, for lack of a better word, creating spheres of influence. And I think they would, whenever I've seen under pressure in tense meetings with friends, Chinese interlocutors, and with other ASEAN, occasionally you will see uh, a Chinese friend in exasperation say, do you not understand we are a big power and you are all small powers and you need to understand that. And so I, I think one of the challenges that we're trying to do, I, I think the United States and other countries are trying to enlist China in a larger project, which is to sustain the mechanisms, the, the, you know, the various protocols, the operating system of Asia, freedom of navigation, peaceful settlement of disputes, validity of contracts that has basically given Asia 50 or 40 of its best years in 1,000, right? And that, and that to, for China to understand that investing in some of those um, uh, mechanisms and procedures are in their best interests. But to be honest, rising powers are never comfortable just accepting the rules of the existing order. And so it's only natural that China wants to put its own stamp on things. And I think the key here is to try to find those areas where we can work with China that are not you know, contradictory to the existing system. Like I think we could have probably handled the AIIB a little bit more deftly. But then there are other areas where we have to be very clear. So what Chris laid out on the South China Sea, I completely agree with him that this issue gets obscured and misunderstood. And we focus very much on the islands. In truth, the big issue on the islands really is more the surrounding nations, their views, and they compete over these little specks of coral and sand. The real issue for us is that, Bob, this is a massive area, the South China Sea. 
And by most measures, this is now the central, most important strategic waterway in the world by tonnage and by value, even more important than the Persian Gulf. And if you listen very carefully to Chinese friends, what they are saying is that this is no longer an international waterway, right? That we will provide the peace and stability for ships that are transiting these waters. Now, my own personal view is that that is antithetical to our strategic interests and actually antithetical to Chinese strategic interests. And we've got to be very clear that those steps are not acceptable to the United States. And if you trace one issue back into our history, right, the first time that the United States ever used its forces on the international scene with the Barbary pirates, it was around the issue of freedom of commerce, freedom of navigation, and freedom of the high seas. So this would be the one issue that I'd be very clear with Chinese friends, that we're not going to adjust our perspective, and they need to rethink their overall position. So, Dimitri, where, where do you see this coming down here? How far is China going to go on this, and what will the Western powers do uh, in response to that? Well, I think if you, if you look back over the last 10 years, um, one of the things that Hu Jintao may have wanted to have done more in the South China Sea, but there were limitations because the Chinese Navy lacked ships. And if you look at just a simple chart of the number of Chinese Coast Guard ships that they've built up over the last probably 10 to 15 years, there's actually a very strong correlation with what they're doing in the South China Sea, the way they are being very assertive towards their neighbors, and the number of ships they have, and the extent to which they can go out to sea, how far they can go from shore. So China now has a capability to do things they didn't have 10 years ago. And I think that's a big part of the, the issue here. What can the US do? Um, it's very difficult because short of actually a military confrontation, what can you do? You can sail ships through the 12-mile nautical zones around some of these features that China claims, but the US and others say is part of international waters. Um, you know, that will make a point, but it's not going to stop China from doing what it's doing. And I think one of the clever things China is doing is that they're, everything they're doing in these islands is happening actually at a fast pace, but also at a relatively slow pace. It's gradual. And no one action on any one feature or island is big enough that it's going to warrant a military response. So I think there's nothing that can trigger really assertive action from the Americans, and no one else has the capability. And in 10 years' time, 15, 20 years' time, you will look back, the landscape, the maritime landscape, will have completely changed. And people will ask, well, how did it happen? And the answer will be, well, it was very hard to prevent. I personally do not see how the Americans can prevent it, and I slightly disagree with Kurt. I think it is in the Chinese strategic interests to take a more active role there. I think, but from the global perspective, uh, everyone would like them to take that responsibility in a responsible way, and if they were patrolling the high seas the way the US Navy has done since World War II, well then it would be a different question, I think. Can, can I, Bob, just sure. on that? The, the reason why I think they have to be careful is that the shipping that basically transits these waters depends on a very sophisticated insurance set of policies on, that basically govern um, maritime commerce. If these areas start to become uh, judged to be more dangerous or more difficult, 
it suddenly alters the equation of commerce through these areas fundamentally. And so what, what I mean by saying that I'm not sure these, are, these actions are all in China's strategic interests, they, they have a profound interest in the maintenance of this system. And by heavily arming these areas, they create the potential for miscalculation, accident of the kind that we saw with EP3 in 2001. And I think some of those steps will turn out to be actually antithetical to Chinese economic and commercial actions. Uh, Chris, it, it, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but haven't we sort of told the Chinese that we're going to sail through these waters? Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, we've, we've had several senior uh, Navy admirals uh, note that this has not been done in many years. Um, we have, uh, of course, Secretary Carter and other senior U.S. officials have said <coughs> repeatedly that we will go anywhere uh, in international waters where we see fit. Um, and so the stage has certainly been set. And I just want to build on something that uh, Dimitri said because I think it's very, very important. This notion of the capability growing and the options that that gives them, uh, you know, they simply couldn't do in the past. And, and a big part of that is, I think one of the fundamental goals with this, and it's totally understandable from China's point of view, is to build some, what they would call maritime strategic depth around their country. They've never really had that in their history, and they've been invaded from the seas <laughs> many times. And so a big part of this program is about creating uh, that space. And then to your point earlier about, you know, as the economy slows, does President Xi need a distraction, you know, sort of a, a, bread, <coughs> a bread and circuses mm -hmm. thing? I, I tend not to like that type of thinking because it, that makes it sound like a tactic when indeed it is a strategy and a, and a quite fulsome one. So do we think this is going to go on for a while? Absolutely. Yes. Long time. And you, you agree with it? Yeah, I, I, I think we're um, moving into a period in which the United States and China in almost every sector, cyber, business attitudes and activities, and primarily military, we're gonna rub up against each other more and more as China goes out and confronts the United States. What worries me more than anything else is that we do not have very well established rules of the road or crisis mechanisms, right, to deal with inadvertence or miscalculation, which I think are very real in the US-China relationship. And that concerns me enormously. But I, I would say to those who, you know, there are times when you are with the architects, the great architects of the US-China relationship, and they look at the current period and they think, God, you know, we did it a lot better 30, 40 years ago. That's probably right. That's probably accurate. But it is also the case that the strategies and the consequences are very different. So 40 years ago, when you're trying to lure out a self-imposed isolation, very poor nation out on the international stage, it's a very different set of strategies than the strategies that you employ today when you're trying to shape the worldview and the actions of the fastest rising power in the history of the planet, right? And so I think probably, although it will be very difficult for us, um, Bob, we're gonna have a relationship that has very intense areas of competition. Uh, but also areas of some shared interests that might be described as cooperation, but really is more like overlapping shared interests, and how to manage that going forward. And we do not have very much history as a nation at these mixed relationships. We have relationship with countries that are, are primarily our friends, and then we had a 50-year black and white uh, friend, foe, 
you know, uh, relationship with the former Soviet Union. So we don't have a lot of history with the complexities of a relationship like we're going to have with China. And it will require um, characteristics that don't often, are not often used when describing American foreign policy. Deafness, subtlety, nuance, sophistication, right? We are about, you know, special forces strikes and, you know, taking it in, uh, uh, to the enemy. This is a much more subtle game that's going to require um, much more preparation and capability. And it's going to be uh, what we have to live with for decades and decades and decades. You know, Dimitri, uh, listening to you and what you have said about the obvious difference in the way Britain is working at this in the United States, uh, I find that fairly disturbing. And uh, there's not many times in our history that we find Britain and the United States not seeing these things pretty much the same. Uh, is the United States, uh, obviously the United States and Japan are going to be on the same side here and Australia, but uh, do you see, how do you see the rest of the West, as it were, uh, seeing all of this right now? Well, you're, you're seeing a I think a huge shift in Europe right now, which is not necessarily sparked by China, it's sparked by the crisis in Greece, it's sparked by Ukraine, it's sparked by other things. But the, if you landed in Europe 20, 30, 40 years ago and said, who is the kind of moral leader of Europe, who's going to take on the foe? Um, you'd go to Britain many times. You wouldn't do that today, you go to Germany. Um, and so the Germans have stepped in. I don't think they wanted to, but circumstances have forced them to, to step in. Angela Merkel is the probably the most, uh, certainly the most powerful leader in Europe. And she's risen at a time that, that David Cameron and the Conservatives have essentially pulled back. Again, whether it comes to Ukraine, whether it comes to Syria, whether it comes to Libya more recently, uh, whether it's the approach on China. The UK is taking less of a, a role on the international stage. And vis-a-vis -vis China specifically, um, we were talking earlier that the David Cameron and George Osborne met the Dalai Lama uh, a few years ago in London in a very public way. And afterwards, the Chinese froze them out for more than a year. The British ambassador in Beijing couldn't get any meetings. And he was essentially redundant. They eventually kissed and made up. And the British decided, well, we're not going to let that happen again. And so they've now cozied up to China. Um, so you have a divergence in Europe as well. Um, and I think while the UK and US will always have what the UK likes to call a special relationship, and it is special, but it's, that's exaggerated. The special relationship is not as special as it used to be uh, in the decades after the, um, the uh, end of the Second World War. Uh, let's go back to the, uh, the summit. <coughs> what uh, do you think, Chris, what, what were the good things and the bad things that came out of this meeting between the president and, uh, and Xi? Sure. Um, I, I think the, the good things were several. Uh, one, we did get an agreement on cybersecurity, uh, which you know, has come under some, some fire, uh, I think, inappropriately. Uh, my own view is that the agreement uh, does the following thing. I think the administration and President Obama was very clear about this in his comments with President Xi in the Rose Garden press conference. There's definitely a, a trust but verify <laughs> uh, element here with, that the administration is taking toward this issue. Um, and I think we see this uh, just in the last week where we had some names of specific Chinese firms that may be sanctioned, uh, leaked. I thought 
you know, shockingly quickly after the ink had dried on the cyber agreement, these, these names were out there. Um, and so it shows it's, a, it's an issue of tension, but uh, it's a useful agreement in the following way. It puts some parameters on Chinese behavior in this space that were not there um, in the past. And how does it do that? Well, you know, with your Chinese glasses on, what has been China's great sort of effectiveness so far on the cyber issue? It's been to never, never, never <laughs> admit any responsibility or that it was emanating from China and so on, you know. And my sense is that in the lead up to the summit, as the, as the uh, agreement was being negotiated, you know, they sent a very senior Chinese security official to come and talk about these issues with the US side. And I think there was some recognition um, that some of this activity had been emanating from China. And that was a first. And we had public statements by both President Xi and the security official when he was here that, you know, if presented with evidence, the Chinese would prosecute these things to the full extent of the Chinese law. So I think what the agreement does is it allows the U.S. then probably to take that evidence, which we will, we have and will have uh, going forward. And we've just seen in the last few days, uh, cybersecurity monitoring firms have come out and said the attack profiles remain as they were uh, before the agreement was signed. Uh, we'll take that evidence to the Chinese and say, this is what your leader said, what are you going to do? And, and when, I would, it's probably more when than if, uh, the Chinese authorities don't prosecute these people, then those sanctions will follow. You know? And so I think that's you know, sort of how to think about the agreement. On the more positive side, I was pleased with several things that happened in the economic space, uh, mainly in, in terms of uh, global economic governance issues. So the Chinese uh, were willing to acknowledge the benefits of the Bretton Woods system as it exists, um, which I think was meant, as Kurt pointed out earlier, to, to uh, you know, handle some concerns about the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank that China had and concerns that that was meant to somehow short circuit the Bretton Woods system. And on the US side, we had agreement to push for the, uh, uh, push harder for the U.S. to get through the 2010 IMF voting quota changes that would give China a greater voice in the IMF. And likewise, uh, we basically endorsed their uh, participation in the IMF special drawing rights baskets of currencies. Uh, we put a lot of caveats on it, but we said we weren't going to block it. And that was very important to the uh, Chinese. So that was a good side. On the bad side, I think the main one was, I just found it quite striking that in the U.S. and the White House released fact sheet anyway, not a single word was mentioned on the topic of maritime security, which of course shows us that there were very deep divisions on that issue, and that's worrisome. And to Kurt's uh, point earlier, I think it's a very valuable one, uh, just that whole crisis management piece. We did have this agreement on air-to-air, -air, you know, uh, and so on. But interestingly on cyber, we got an agreement on cyber economic espionage. We didn't get the agreement that everyone thought we would, which was the so-called no first use uh, agreement, which is you know mutual non-targeting of critical infrastructure mm -hmm. and so on. And I happen to think that one's the most important in cyberspace, given how quickly things that happen in cyber can go from non-kinetic <laughs> to a kinetic response. You know, When two ships run into each other, the captains can see each other. There's an opportunity for bridge-to-bridge -bridge communication. You know, You can kind of de-escalate that. With cyber, that's much more difficult. Could, could I just add on that bump? Yeah. yeah, thank you. I like the way Chris laid it out, and I do agree with the positives. But I will say that one of the challenges of, of this, what we hope will be a positive outcome, is that you have to acknowledge that the process itself is coercive, right? So you go very close to the edge. There's a lot of pressure. There's you know views that there's going to be retaliation. That then causes the Chinese to start to adjust your, their position. And that in itself is a dynamic that over time becomes, I believe, a little bit corrosive. I think, um, I think the other things that were positive, I think it's good that the two presidents spent a lot of time together. 
I think each laid out their positions clearly. I think we were a little bit surprised at how firm and clear President Xi was about his perspectives, right? There's a lot of us lecturing the Chinese about what we'd like to see different. He came right back with, these are our strategic interests. You're flying near our, our nation. You are doing things that you know suggest that you're trying to contain or um, somehow limit Chinese power. I, I would have liked to, there are a couple of things that I would have liked to seen uh, either more or less of. I, I do find that in these circumstances, Chinese friends spend an inordinate amount of time talking about the historic alliance between the United States and China against the you know, marauding Japanese in the 1930s and 1940s. And I understand the historical dimensions, but in truth, I think those concepts are not very, um, <coughs> I don't think they're very effective in the American um, uh, uh, political context uh, ever, but certainly currently. And it sort of tends to gloss over 70 pretty good years of Japan both engaging China and never firing a shot in anger, right? Which no other country basically in the world can have a similar, um, a similar message. The other thing I would have liked to seen in, in addition to the maritime security references, I mean, one of the great achievements, ironically, despite all the tension of the United States and China, is actually the maintenance of peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait even though it's been one of the hardest issues that the two countries have had to deal with. Now, neither country can acknowledge that it's extremely successful, but it has been. Um, we're coming into a very different period, though, in Taiwan. And I would have liked the United States to underscore that we are strong, uh, uh, we have a strong commitment to the preservation of peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait because some you know, kind of coercive negative measures, again, are ramping up in China because they anticipate a potential change uh, in government in Taiwan. Um, but overall, I think the, um, I think the, uh, the summit was, was generally positive, but this is one of those summits that I think will be judged not by what happens in the meeting itself, but by subsequent activities. Will we be able to sustain the same high level of engagement? Did we brief our allies and bring them into some of these discussions? Did we embed our China strategy in a larger regional framework? And only time will tell to see if that plays out. Dimitri, you, uh, you lived in, uh, well, you were in Hong Kong for many years. And uh, is there any way for us in the West to gauge what public opinion in China is? I mean. Do we know, how much do the Chinese know about what we've been talking about here today and, and about you know, this, these things that are going on in the Pacific and all of that? Uh, what do we know about what the Chinese think about all this? Well, I would say that despite the fact that the internet is censored in China, um, many, particularly young Chinese, know how to use VPN tokens, virtual private networks. They know how to circumvent um, the barriers and they know how to get onto Western websites and many people read English. I would say the average knowledge of the US in China is higher than the average knowledge of China in the US. Um, I was talking recently to a, a former a Secretary of State who met some Chinese and the Secretary of State started to give the Chinese some advice on the US political system and the Chinese person responded, well, have you ever read a Chinese novel? 
And the US official, former US official said no. And the Chinese person said, well, we've read many. Maybe you should actually read one of ours before you lecture us on. Um, so on one level, I think there's a lot more knowledge in China than people realize. On the other hand, there's a huge amount of propaganda in China. Um, just as I was leaving Hong Kong, CCTV television in China put out a, I believe it was a nine-part documentary on the South China Sea, um, conveniently also subtitled in English. And it was essentially creating a narrative for the Chinese people to explain that despite what you read in the Western press or the Financial Times or wherever, these waters are, they're our waters. They have been for a long time and it's called the South China Sea, not the West Philippine Sea or the something something <laughs> sea. Um, so, um, no, I think that's very telling. Can I just real briefly? Sure. Uh, you know, I think it's, it, it tells us a lot in the context of the summit what President Xi was willing to compromise on and what he wasn't. So mm -hmm. cybersecurity, he was willing to make a deal on that issue. And I think part of the reason is, to your point, Bob, the Chinese public basically has no idea what's been happening there in terms of the intellectual theft, you know, the intellectual property theft and so on. And it's technical and complex and so on. So, you know, a lot of us don't really understand those mm -hmm. details either. But where he didn't give was on territory, South China Sea, nationalism, important to the domestic control of the, of the leadership. And uh, we haven't talked about it yet, but human rights issues, the foreign non-governmental organization law and so on, he was very firm in not showing any, uh, giving any ground there. So I think that tells us something about how the Chinese, what matters to the Chinese public and to the regime, these issues that uh, are touch on their control, their domestic uh, stability and security and the nationalism piece, very firm, others less so. Bob, could I just add sure. that, I mean, his visit here was completely, beyond Washington, was completely drowned out by the Pope, John Boehner, <laughs> Vladimir Putin, Donald <laughs> Trump. I mean, we, we did the numbers, and I forget what the total was, but Xi Jinping got very little coverage. Back home in China, his visit got a lot of coverage. Obviously, the things they wanted people to see, but yeah. he did better at home than he did here. Can I, I, the, the, That's a very interesting Yeah, point. the Chinese party and the government have become much better at doing their own subtle but sophisticated polling. And so they have actually a pretty good sense on a variety of things. And I would say some of the things that are widely believed inside government at the highest levels, number one, that, that President Xi is actually quite popular, particularly popular in the, with the rank and file, right? And has used the nationalist credentials um, very effectively. An overwhelming majority, like in the 90s, believed that these islands and this area, the South China Sea, as Chris indicated, belong to China. And there's just no debate about it. Like, what in the world are we talking about here? This is so clearly ours. But what's interesting also is you can go to other countries and the same fervent feeling is apparent. If you want to see white knuckles among diplomats, go to any country and talk maritime security issues. No one's prepared to make any concessions in this regard. I, I would also say that, um, that the, the brittleness, though, in, of certain public engagements are quite clear. What's different this time, for instance, than when previous Chinese leaders came to the United States, he had a security detail that rivaled, you know, how President Obama travels, right? And no, larger, much larger now. And he, you can see his movement and uh, activities are much more closely constrained, and he has much 
more fundamental security than any Well, Chinese is he leaders. secure in his position? Dimitri talked about this. I, I don't, I mean, look, I think that ultimately is uh, a very serious question, but I've heard reports about attempts. I, I personally think that's unlikely, but people that I respect and, and who follow these things closely believe that it's a possibility. I think the way I would describe him is a very strong but increasingly exposed leader. He is out there on the global stage. But I will also say, Bob, he's the only leader I've ever met who this time, he appeared younger than when I saw him when I traveled. I mean, so, I mean, whatever is going on, it appears to, you know, to sit well for him. He's vibrant and dynamic. It's the hair, it's the hair polish that's better. Yeah, that's right. But, but, but to, Kurt, to Kurt's Chris. point, I mean, I think this is very important because one of the challenges here is that uh, in, in the broad sinological community, I think there's been, uh, to some degree, Xi Jinping has been something of an inconvenient truth for a school that had built up over time that sort of thought that the party was moving toward greater regularization and institutionalization and so on. And he's sort of blown that up, as Kurt was mentioning uh, in his opening remarks. And, and so I find that folks are very quick whenever there's the slightest hint of a problem, such as the economic downturn, to say the bloom has come off the rose, he's on his back foot, et cetera. And then often what we see is him come swinging back with some sort of new anti-corruption piece or personnel changes or something along these lines. I mean, I can remember, for example, before the now sort of famous third plenum that released this you know, very bold reform vision, everyone said it's not gonna do anything. In fact, even when the communique came out, people very quickly said, ah, there's, it's a nothing burger, there's nothing here. And then the next day the decision, the formal document came out and everyone had to change tune. So I just think it's important that we not undersell because he seems, in my judgment, to continually outperform expectations. But well, I, what, I, I would suggest, I think we actually swing from extreme to extreme. Mm. So we tend to, first of all, sometimes exaggerate China, you know, all its capabilities. But then when they hit a little bump in the road, then we go the other extreme and tend to minimize their prospects. I mean, my own sense is this is a powerful country. They have the wherewithal to get through this difficult period. And they're just a fact for us as we go forward. But as much, we are a fact for them. And we, one of the things, the skill of American diplomacy is to underscore we're not going anywhere. We have a history in the Asia-Pacific region. We're going to continue. And we're going to have to learn to work together. Let me ask, uh, I'm sorry, did you want just, to say something? Just one small thing. I mean, just on the, for example, how China handled the economy over the summer. I was at a panel recently where someone said this showed that China was doomed. And I said, well, by that logic, if you look at Congress right now, <laughs> the U.S. is two weeks away from an event. If the U.S. does not raise Implosion. its official debt ceiling, it will default on its debt. I don't think it will happen, but we're two weeks away. Um, four years ago, when we were in the same kind of game of chicken, uh, Standard & Poor's downgraded American debt from AAA, the top rating for the first time. And it was a huge blow to American credibility. That's almost more important than what you do in the South yeah, China Sea. I agree. And yet Congress, we're two weeks away and nothing has happened. Okay, Bob, on that, I just went, sorry, we, we were traveling. I remember we were on one of these trips with Secretary Clinton. And, you know, when we, you travel, you give the to be expected speeches, right? Sort of like these are the things that you're going to have to do. And we were going to give an economic speech. And so I was just getting to feel comfortable. So I said, look, this, we were a day or two away from this crisis in the United States. And what Asians wanted to hear was not like what are the tweaks that need to be made in your export policy, but some reassurance 
that you're not going to do this incredibly self-destructive thing that will have horrible consequences for the rest of us, that you are, as a nation, not clinically insane, right? <laughs> not clinically insane. Yeah. What argument did you make? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Secretary Clinton, reminds me of the trade agreement. <coughs> Yeah. What do you think, uh, and I'd just like to hear from all of you, what do you think the uh, impact will be if the uh, trade agreement goes down? As in doesn't pass? Yes. You mean cataclysmic? Disastrous. Dimitri, do you have any thoughts on that? I, I wouldn't say cataclysmic, but I don't think it's going to be a good thing for anybody, including China. I, I don't, I, I think we have to be, we have to realize about this, Bob. First of all, it is the singular economic and commercial achievement of five years of work, number one. We don't got any other game in town. And Asians, the, the, the price of admission into the Asian discotheque has gone way up. <laughs> and we got to have a plan of action. And they like the fact that we have our you know, military port deployed. But what they're really looking for is an America that's confident, that has an economic agenda, that wants to work with other countries and that we move immediately on to phase two, right? Which I hope will include friends and partners like Korea, but also I have high hopes that there will be elements of uh, the TPP that China will aspire to, and that China itself may use elements of that to help drive reform in their own country. So my own sense is that it's ext extraordinarily important. And those that say, well, look, it's not that bad, you know, I, I don't, I think they're, misjudging how difficult it is for the United States right now in Asia. Yeah, do, do you say that in those terms? I do, especially because I think it's very important to recall that, you know, yes, TPP is, is certainly about uh, economics and trade. It is a highly geostrategic uh, document exactly. as well. The whole reason, in my own assessment, that Japan decided to get in, for example, much more about geostrategy yeah. than the economics. They were going to lose some things in the economics, but they knew they had to do it. And it was quite striking. Uh, I remember being with Kurt, actually, in several meetings uh, with Chinese where we were talking about this. In the early stages with TPP, they, they wouldn't quite break out into laughter, but <laughs> yeah. they just thought it wasn't serious. And then when Japan got in, it got their attention, and suddenly it was very serious and so on. So I think it's it just such an, as Kurt said, it's such an important statement of our credibility. It's what the Asians want to see, that we're not just a military power, but we're in the game economically. And it is good for China, because they will feel at some point, and there's a big debate <coughs> for seeing this in China right now, uh, like that proverbial child with their face pressed up against the glass, seeing this all going on around them. And they won't, I, I'm not as certain that they'll ever sign on to TPP. My sense is that their hope will be to transcend TPP and move straight on to a free trade area of the Asia Pacific or maybe a, re, uh, a revived Geneva round, or, you know, WTO round, something in the Geneva process. But it's a forcing function, and I think that's good for everyone. Uh, would anyone like to ask any questions? Right here. The lady on the front row here. You can tell us who you are. Uh, thank you very much, Jennifer Chen, reporter with Shenzhen Media Group China. Uh, just as Mr. Dimitri mentioned, the bilateral relationship between China and the UK is expected to enter the golden age as President Xi Jinping is, visiting, is paying a state visit to the UK right now. So I just wonder, sir, your observation, how do you assess the impact of the golden age UK-China relations to the, uh, the future uh, US-UK uh, special relations. Thank you very much. 
would like to do that. That's good. So, so whether what the UK is doing with China will impact the UK-US relationship? Yeah. Um, I think it will have some impact, but at the end of the day, there are a lot of other issues where the UK and the US are working quite closely together. And as um, I was saying, maybe before we came on stage, every year in Singapore, there's a big defense conference called Shangri-La, where all the Asians, the Americans go, and the Germans and the French go too. The British tend not to be there, which is a sign that actually the British focus on Asia, um, with the exception of China and trade, is um, much less intense than the US focus on Asia. A, because Britain is obviously not a Pacific power um, the way the US, or at all. Um, and secondly, because Britain is a very small country relative to China, which is something that the Chinese uh, press likes to point out every day. <laughs> Anyone else? Over here, this side. Thank you. Um, I hope the panel will allow me a comment as representative of the British Embassy, um, where I had the Asia team, where I've been listening with great interest. Um, I'll just say a Can couple you things. All understand. I'm sorry. I it's very difficult in here. There's an oh. echo. Uh, maybe if you'd stand up. Sure. Can you hear me better? Yes. Yeah, that's I had better. the Asia team at the British Embassy. Um, my name's Lucy Hughes. It's been very interesting listening to the panel. I'd just say, first of all, we, we don't really recognize the narrative which Dimitri sets out of only talking about economic issues with the Chinese because we've been very clear, as the Chancellor has in China, and the Prime Minister has as well, that we see the economic conversation as being very important, of course, but making it easier to have the other conversations as well. Um, on all the difficult issues which you've been talking about. We've had a series of private, senior, extensive conversations with the administration, and they've not actually said anything which represents the positions that you've characterised. I'd also just add that Michael Fallon, our Defence Secretary, was in Shangri-La this year. Well, I mean, the, it's hard for me to disagree with that, except to say that when I was reporting my piece this morning, I talked to uh, a huge number of age officials in Washington and not one of them said to me that we support what George Osborne is doing, including Evan Medeiros, who until two months ago was Barack Obama's top Asia advisor, and he himself said that the UK was engaging on a very dangerous path. Right here. Sir, I'm Aizen Morogi. I'm medical officer with a civil affairs unit out of uh, Fort Meade. Thank you very much for this distinguished panel, and Mr. Secretary, thank you for your service. I do have a question for you. As a physician, I've read in the news the Chinese interest in U.S. health, in, in health affairs in general, and uh, they desire to shift healthcare from public into private sector. Do you see a healthcare playing a role in United States-China relationship? Mm -hmm. Is there an interest from China in, in healthcare, U.S. healthcare sector? Yeah, I can answer that. So, look, that's a great question. I mean, look. In truth, the, the, the most, the issue that we focus the most on is this symmetry, you know, kind of mono mono at the top level. But as important is the much broader societal engagement that takes place. So, you know, it gets kind of poo-pooed in kind of conversations about the U.S.-China relationship. But the so-called strategic and economic dialogue at times has had basically uh, dozens of agencies beginning conversations with their Chinese counterparts on a whole host of issues. Um, forestry, healthcare matters, transportation, road building, railways, you know, and just learning and people who, uh, uh, relationships that 
did not exist, seeing what's possible. And, and it's, you know, if you're at our level, Chris and I, or whatever in government, you, you can get cynical sometimes, and you can, but when you see people for the first time meet their counterparts, and I watched a group of people who talked about in forestry, talking about how they could work together on reforestation issues and lessons learned on each side, and they left really having developed what could be a very important relationship. And we say the same things on healthcare, on welfare, and education. My own personal um, belief is that we are in a race in which we need a much broader group of people in both countries to understand the importance of the relationship. If you ask me what two countries on the planet are most uncomfortable with interdependence, probably the United States and China. And what two countries probably today have the greatest amount of interdependence across the board, <laughs> trade, macroeconomic, probably the United States and China. And so as bitter as this is going to be, we are going to actually have to learn to live together and find areas of constructive cooperation, right? All right, right here. Thank you, Jane with China China News. Um, just following up on the UK question to Mr. Campbell and Mr. Johnson, um, UK seems to have a better, softer welcome to toward Xi Jinping, and why do you think that is? Well, look, I, I deeply respect, I love working with Great Britain. I, I'm, on a, <laughs> I'm on a British board bank. I love visiting, um, and I will say, and you're sitting beside an Irish yeah, guy. You yeah, know an Irish guy. So that's, that, that answers a lot right there. So, uh, <laughs> so I, I will say that nothing the United States has ever done of importance have we done without Great Britain. That is just across the board. And so if you ask me what is most important, um, which has been absent generally, and this, there's no one you can blame on this, but it just, we have very detailed, in-depth, discussions with European friends about Syria, about climate change, about Iran, about Iraq, about Afghanistan, about Libya, about Qatar, about every issue around these complex, about Russia and Ukraine. So we always say to ourselves, gee, we've got to find more time to talk about Asia. Since both Europe and the United States are pivoting to Asia, we both recognize that the lion's share of the history of the 21st century is gonna be written there. So we need to find the time and energy at a strategic senior level to talk more about Asia and about China's role in it. Now, I think that could not be more important. In fact, I think China is now well ahead of us in these conversations about Asia with European friends. I, I, must say, I, I do share some of Dimitri's concerns. I do think it's gonna be important for Britain to understand that there are, there's a larger set of, uh, of concerns than just trade and commerce, A. And B, um, China and other countries respect firmness and a clear statement of, of purpose. And I would like to see Britain uphold some of its commitments that it's always had in the past. The uniqueness of, of Hong Kong continuing. Um, I, th I think uh, the commitment to dialogue between China and the Dalai Lama, some human rights issues. And so I, 
I think those matters are important and I'd like to see them continue. I do not believe that this will cause a gap between the United States and Great Britain. There's too One many more things question. that are, that, are, that unite us. Right here. Thank you very much for a very interesting conversation. My name's Paula Stern. And I was surprised uh, that y'all didn't talk about the bit, uh, the negotiations uh, regarding the bilateral investment treaty. Me too, I forgot. <laughs> I beg your pardon? I said, me too. I'm surprised. I meant to bring it up, and I just simply Good, forgot. I'll do your job. So do my job. <laughs> I give you a chance to comment. <laughs> Thank you. Dimitri, why don't you start? Who um, wants to talk? Chris, you, I'll start. Everybody. Why don't you start? I would simply say this. I, I think, you know, per the discussion we had about TPP a moment ago, um, you know, we're, we're late in the Obama administration now. Um, whatever remaining economic, uh, whatever remaining bandwidth the economic officials in the Obama team have will be fully dedicated to uh, making sure TPP gets across the line and probably maybe on a much smaller <coughs> scale dealing with unwinding, in our case, 40 years of sanctions with Iran, and in other countries' case, five years of sanctions with Iran, and making sure our own firms aren't at the very end of the very lengthening line. Um, and so the BIT is important as a concept. I think uh, what I found striking say, about, say what BIT is. Oh, yes, is. the Bilateral Investment Treaty between yeah. the United States and China, which has been proposed as sort of a stepping stone, if you will, toward TPPP, that the Chinese aren't ready for TPP yet, so you have something called the Bilateral Investment Treaty that helps them get there. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was struck by the language in the fact sheet, which basically, if you parse through the Diplo speak, said, negotiators, get in the dark room and keep negotiating. Uh, you know, the negative lists that were exchanged didn't move the, the needle very much. Um, interestingly, just today, the Chinese are talking about some pilot programs about domestic um, negative lists, and so I think that's very encouraging. So this is on their minds, but this is the project of a next administration in the U.S. I mean, I, I would agree with that. The only other thing I would say is that there's a lot of debate in China now as to whether, to what extent Xi Jinping can move forward with some of the economic reforms, um, some of which are related to the, the BIT, and I think what we see right now is that there's a, there's a lot of argument happening behind the scenes in China about how quickly China reforms, particularly given what's happened to the economy and uh, regardless of how it was mismanaged over the summer, the Chinese economy is definitely slowing. There's disagreement as to how much, uh, how fast it's slowing, but certainly the, the Chinese don't have a uniform position on what they're going to do. So Paul, I really appreciate the question. I, I actually anticipated that there would be more progress than there was. I was surprised by that. And I think it, it basically plays to both Chris and Dimitri's point about maybe, I think the real limitation factor is not on the US on this side. I think it's really more on the Chinese side. The only issue that's really hard for us right now really are the issues associated with currency and manipulation. And, and I think that over time can be managed. But I think the real issue is the so-called negative list. And I, I think at the core of this is really the coming struggle for the U.S. business role in China. I'll just say a word about that. For decades, it has been American capital going into China, American firms, to basically create goods that are then re-exported to the United States and elsewhere. The next phase of Chinese growth, if it's to be successful, and if the United States-China relationship is to be healthy, means that American goods and services must increasingly serve and support the growing middle class in China. 
And I think it would be fair to say even Chinese friends would acknowledge that they are ambivalent about that right now. They're not sure whether they're going to create protections or support for that. But for us, that should be a non-negotiable. It's absolutely essential for the relationship, and there has to be an American role in this surging middle class uh, in China. And that has to be our foundational principle as we go forward. Well, I want to thank you all very much. Uh, I, I, was, I learned a lot today, and that's how I always judge these things, because I don't know very much to start with. But uh, I thought it was one of our better discussions, gentlemen. And thank you, Bob. And thank you all thank for you. your attention.